0: Hello! Welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have an even more sparse sort of schedule for today. Uh, We are reading the back half of Aristotle's discussion of friendship here in the Nicomachean Ethics, Chapter 9. And this is very much just an odds and ends kind of chapter. Uh, Aristotle has very much outlined his kind of systematic categories of friendship and, you know, exactly what that looks like in, in the big picture sense. Um, And now we're dealing more with the the little objections and and edge cases and and strange circumstances that are sort of surrounding the subject of friendship, Um, which means that we're probably going to be able to call it a little short today. Here's Topin anyway. Like My voice is tired from recording all these lectures this week. so let's just go ahead and dive right in and, and talk about the various issues that we're going to bump into here. Um, and this time I'm going to take it a little bit more systematically. Like last time I kind of jumped around and hit all the main points and sort of ignored everything in between. Here I, I'm just going to like take it point by point, section by section, um, just sort of reading through the text here. Um, and notice especially that each of these little chapters from nine one on, they, they all typically center around one specific question. Um, This is what Aristotle's method really kind of boils down to at this point. Like now that he has, you know, posed all the major questions and answered most of them in the last chapter, it's time to pose all the little questions, the little fiddly things, the objections and the sort of, you know, famous uh, axioms and and pithy sayings that a lot of the Greeks have sort of been kicking around on the subject of friendship and responding to them in each kind. Um, So we start out with this discussion of proportionality. Uh, Remember that last time we talked about Aristotle is generally very open to the idea of friendship between superiors or uh, unequals, uh, people who have like disproportionate wealth or disproportionate honor, disproportionate power, um, and how that's essentially not a bad thing as far as Aristotle is concerned. But notice how he talks about it here in this section one and what that kind of indicates about Greek culture at large here. Um So notice he he starts out right here at the beginning of chapter nine, and all friendships and friends with dissimilar aims, it is proportion that equalizes and preserves the friendship, as we said. For example, in political friendship, the cobbler receives a worthy exchange for his shoes, and so do the weaver and the others. Here money is supplied as a common measure. Everything is related to this and measured by it. Um, and he goes on to talk about different uh, disproportionate relationships of this sort, erotic friendships, um, he talks about, like, giving and receiving, uh, doing services for others, and taking the money beforehand, and then not providing the appropriate service. He even mentions at the very bottom of page 51 uh, this great little bit about how, like, philosophers offer something that is not measurable in money, and therefore you really have to, like, you know, be nice to your philosopher. You know, everybody tip your philosopher, just don't forget that they are people who are trying to make men's meet as well. Um, But what I want to sort of stress here, what I want to emphasize for our purposes is that a lot of what he's talking about is kind of basic economics 101 stuff here. And this seems a little out of place in the context of a discussion about friendship. uh, Reading between the lines, notice what that means about ancient Greek culture here. Um, So notice, like, um, in the, right about halfway down the page, he actually answers, he asks the sort of central question of this section, um, right on, right around line 25 on, uh, on page 51, uh, who should fix the worth of a benefit, the giver or the receiver? The giver would seem to leave it to the receiver, as Protagoras is said to have done, for whenever he taught anything at all, he used to tell the pupil to estimate how much the knowledge was worth, and that amount would be his payment. In such cases, however, some prefer the rule a man should have his payment, but those who take the money first and then do nothing that they said they would do because their promises were excessive are predictably accused, since they do not carry out what they agreed to, and presumably the sophists are compelled to make excessive promises, for no one would pay the money for the knowledge they really have. Hence, they take the payment and then do not do what they were paid to do and predictably are accused. Notice what he's talking about here. Specifically with Protagoras and the sophists, all of these were teachers, uh, people who, you know, said, I'm going to teach your child how to, you know, perform oratory, or what is the nature of goodness, or what is the nature of justice, or so on and so forth, charge beforehand, and then not be able to deliver the goods, because they don't actually know what justice, or goodness, or any of that stuff actually is. But the question that we're kind of led to ask here is, why is this in the purview of friendship, you know, this is business stuff. This is, like, the way that society works. Like, this is basic transactional 101. Like, if somebody short shifts you on a service that they agreed to do and you paid them beforehand, then you sue them, right? Like, there are legal consequences, repercussions for this. But remember, this is ancient Greece we're talking about. There is no system in place for this. Um, what Aristotle is discussing here is, as far as he's concerned, friendship. Um, the relationship that you have with the person who makes your shoes or the person who, you know, teaches your child or, um, you know, even like these these other sorts of business type relationships, you know, these are two Aristotle relationships. There is no, you know, there is no govern, governing body organizing transactions of this sort. There's not like a fixed rate that, that is sort of suggested for various skills or something. There's not competition in ancient Athens. Like, there's one guy who does all the blacksmithing, so it's probably in your best interest to be friends with him if you're going to need a blacksmith a lot. Uh, there's, like, maybe a couple of guys who, you know, does shoes either on your estate or, you know, in Athens at large, so you better have a decent relationship with him in order to, you know, get your shoes done properly. And notice that this means that Prices are, in fact, very much up in the air. Notice that he asks that central question, you know, who decides what a given service is worth. Is it the person who is offering the service or the person who is receiving the service? Like he uses the example of Protagoras. You know, I have wisdom. I am going to give you my wisdom. After I have given you my wisdom, it will be entirely up to you to pay me according to how much you think that wisdom is worth. There is no economy here in the sense that we talk about it. Like, folks in Athens didn't just walk into a store and, you know, buy something from somebody that they had never met or never heard of. Like, you have relationships with all of the people who perform various crafts in this city. Their prices are the going rate. And if you do not want to pay that, then you don't go, and that person loses your business, and in theory they will reevaluate whether or not they're going to charge that much in the future. Or more likely, you're just gonna haggle until you come to something that you can both agree upon. And that haggling is going to depend on your relationship. Is the guy going to be nice to you or is he not going to be nice to you? You know, did did you perform a favor for him recently or and therefore he's going to, you know, recognize that he might have, like, gotten something more than he should have last time. You know, there's all these sorts of considerations, and friendship is the defining factor here. Um, As much as we have been talking, especially, about these, you know, big virtuous friendships, these intimate relationships between one person and another, um, and sort of downplayed our discussion of the friendships of utility and the friendships of pleasure, notice that this is really important in Greek life at this point in time. Like, it doesn't matter whether you have a relationship with the person who gives you your coffee at Starbucks. Like, they are paid to be there. You know they are paid to be there. They are just, you know, the representative of a multi-million dollar corporation and therefore have nothing to do with the price setting, or, you know, they're not going to, like, just randomly give you coffee out of the blue. Like, perhaps if you are really friendly with the barista, they'll help you out or they'll, you know, give you a free coffee from time to time. But it's very unlikely because, again, you're doing business not with this person, but with the corporation that this person represents. But that doesn't that doesn't have any parallel in ancient Greece you are interacting specifically with the person who has gotten the raw materials together and made the thing, and that's all there is to it. Like, that person decides how much money that that task is worth, and if you disagree with it, then you haggle down to a price that you're both okay with. And that will depend as much on, you know, how much work this person does, what the raw materials cost, whatever other economic forces are in play, as it will on how close your relationship is on the estates, for example, you know, many of these services will be provided. Like, the theoretical going rate is the fact that you're going to keep them under your protection. So, if you do have, like, you know, a whole bunch of horses and therefore have your own blacksmith on your own estate, which was probably very likely in the estates of wealthier folks in, in ancient Greece, you know, that person's enjoying room and board, and it is your responsibility as the lord of the household to provide that room and board. So, that person will comfortably continue to reside there to continue performing their service for your family continue doing what you hope that they will keep doing when you do in fact go into the marketplace the agora when you do in fact need something that you cannot provide from your own uh from your own household you're immediately going to rely on your friendships and connections in order to get the services you need um, that's just the way it goes so when we've been talking about friendships of utility as though these are like you know quasi-business relationships, but also quasi-not-that. Keep in mind that when we say business relationships, we're not talking about people shaking hands on a golf course in order to make a merger happen. We're talking about everyday activities, stuff like buying new shoes or getting a haircut. Um you know, going to the gym, like get being trained by a personal trainer or by an educator of some kind. Um, These are the sorts of, of services that are provided within the agora, and you will be expected to sort of negotiate your price and their fee according to your relationship and uh, how close the two of you are. If you are making enemies with the guy who teaches your child, in all likelihood, he's going to gouge the crap out of you. Um, So being friends, being on a fairly, you know, friendly footing is actually a really important part of this process. Um, To give you an example from our contemporary culture, like where this is still kind of evident, uh, the example that I immediately think of is actually Etsy, Uh, like any time that you're dealing with an independent business online that stands or falls according to its ratings, uh, that isn't, you know, some mega corporation, but is in fact just like one dude doing a very specialized task, um, the relationships will get much more personal, much faster. You will expect a certain amount of You know, customer service specifically from the person who's doing this. Etsy users and Etsy sellers stand or fall on their rating, and as a consequence, they are attempting to provide a service with the personal level of detail and the personal kind of relationship that you're seeing here. And if, for example, you do, you know, you want to buy a whole bunch of stuff for a wedding or a party or something, chances are they are willing to negotiate with you. If you're like, yes, I really like this, you know. Do that you make, can you make me like 150 of them at a discount? Chances are they're going to talk to you about it. It won't be a conversation. And depending on how that relationship goes, depending on how nice you are to them, they might be able to knock more off the price. That's how trade has worked for 2,500 years. And again, it is only recently, like since the, let's say 17th and 18th centuries, that it is changed radically enough that you do start to expect a fixed price, that the government does sort of directly get involved in day-to-day trade and affairs. Um, that's a fairly recent development. Now we're going to see examples of this in ancient Roman stuff, like economics is not my specialty, so I'm not going to like go, you know, in great detail about pre-mercantilism economic systems. Um, suffice it to say for our purposes that when you live in an ancient society as close-knit as the Athenian one that Aristotle is describing here, friendship has a lot more to do with your day-to-day buying and selling than it definitely does now. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, when F- Aristotle is talking about friendship, it is a much broader category than we tend to associate with it. Um, Like, he is talking about a wide variety of interpersonal interactions that we typically would not consider friends, um, but rather, you know, like acquaintances or like just business relationships in one sense or another. Uh, But let's move on. Let's look at the second section that he wants to talk about here. Um, Here are some other questions that raise a puzzle. Must one accord authority in everything to his father and obey him in everything? Or must he trust the doctor when he is sick? And should he vote for a military expert to be general? Similarly, should someone serve his friend rather than an excellent person and return a favor to a benefactor rather than do a favor for a companion if he cannot do both? So here we're entering another really tricky moral question. Um, how do we prioritize our responsibilities, our duties? Um, and this is kind of another weird thing to fall into the category of the discussion of friendship, although it definitely kind of is relevant to what's being said here. Notice the way he frames it, though, that like, uh, should one obey one's father first and foremost before all other responsibilities? Um, the suggestion here is certainly that we do have greater obligations to To certain people rather than others. And notice that he's having trouble sort of balancing these responsibilities. On the one hand, you do have this incredibly great responsibility to your father from the Greek perspective. Remember, as we talked about, father brought you into life. Father gave you everything that you have. Father raised you. Father You know, protects you at all times, and therefore your obligation to your father will never be 100% totally repaid. It is constant, it is always sort of hanging over your head. Uh, But look at what it's compared to. Like these, you know. Do you trust your father to take care of you when you're sick, or do you go to somebody who is professionally an expert on this, a doctor? Do you vote for your father for a position of power in the demos, even if he's unqualified for it, or do you vote for somebody who is a proven effective general or something? Um, Do you, you know, repay your debts to your father first and foremost, or do you instead focus on this excellent person, this person who is incredibly virtuous, uh, who could better use the money and the, the effects here. And as much as we talked last time about how these familial bonds are kind of assumed, notice that Aristotle's sort of undermining them here. Yes, a father is important, but a father isn't perfect. Your relationship to your father does imply a level of intimacy that you would not achieve very frequently outside of the familial relationship, but at the same time Aristotle is definitely getting at that there are other relationships that do occasionally trump the familiar familial relationship. What's more, notice how he's also talking about duty and obligation here. Uh, throughout section two, he's sort of bringing up these edge case situations where, you know, your duty to reciprocate a favor that has been paid to you or a duty to repay a debt that you have is secondary to other responsibilities. So, notice the kind of wild example that he brings up here at the bottom of page 52. Um, Presumably, this is not always true that you should immediately return favors rather than do new favors for others. If, for example, someone has rescued you from pirates, should you ransom him in return no matter who he is? Or if he does not need to be ransomed but asks for his money back, should you return it or should you ransom your father instead? Here it seems that you should ransom your father rather than even yourself. Now, I do, in fact, want to talk about the fact that Aristotle seems to regard being ransomed from pirates as like an everyday obligation that one will be obligated to fulfill. Um, This does, in fact, happen in ancient Greece all the time. Um, Remember, as we talked about, ancient Greece is an archipelago. It is, you know, it's very rocky and ugly to sort of traverse by foot. Um, So most people are going to get from place to place using a boat. Um, and most people cannot afford to go with some, you know, huge protection details. So if you were conducting just regular trade, or if you happen to be stranded somewhere that you don't know about, which happens a lot, Greek, ancient Greek navigational systems are also pretty rudimentary, um, there is a high probability that you will be captured by pirates. Um, this does, in fact, happen all the time. Like, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, people are paying ransoms for each other literally all the time. Um, there's one point where Achilles literally captures a dude who he has already captured in battle at an earlier point, And the guy's like, Hey, Achilles, great to see you again! It's awesome! Are you gonna, like, ransom me to my family again? Or are we gonna hang out? And Achilles is like, No, I am killing all of the Trojans. Which is actually kind of awkward. Um, but nonetheless, like, this is just a fairly regular occurrence. Like rich folks, when they are captured in battle, typically are not killed. They are just ransomed. You know, why would you kill a perfectly good hostage when you could instead sell him back to his family for a pretty impressive amount of swag? Um, So notice that, you know, here we have this contrived situation where like you were recently ransomed from pirates and this guy is like, can you pay me back for that time that I got you out of the pirates' hands? but also your father at the exact same time is also ransomed for pi- or to pirates and you have to like pay the ransom for your father. Notice that Aristotle doesn't balk at the situation. He just like answers it. Um, this is apparently something that could happen. Like, you know, it's, congratulations, you're home from the pirates. You've been home for like six months and already your father has also been ransomed or something. Um, but notice his conclusion as well. Um, yeah, you should probably get your father back before you pay back the guy who's holding this over your head. As much as there is a duty and an obligation to pay people back, there are obligations that trump those, and your relationship to your father is one of those. What's more, notice that immediately after this he's talking about reciprocity and sort of mentions that reciprocity, as much as it's sort of assumed and important to being an honorable person, isn't necessarily the right course of action. So he says the second full paragraph down on page 53, right around line 5, For sometimes even a return of a previous favor is not fair, but in an excessive demand. Whenever the original giver knows he is benefiting an excellent person, but the recipient would be returning the benefit to someone he thinks is vicious. For sometimes you should not even lend in return to someone who has lent to you. For he expected repayment when he lent to a decent person, whereas you have no hope of it from a bad person. Notice that reciprocity, according to Aristotle, is dependent on the character of the person you are engaged in this interaction with. It is not necessarily a good idea to pay bad people back for the services that they have performed for you, um, either because you can't trust them to use that money well, or because you have other obligations to people who are more worthwhile, more deserving of your attention and your favor. Um, That's very much the suggestion here again, notice that the sort of economic assumptions that are very prevalent here in ancient Greece are not the same ones as we have. Like, if you said to your electric company, I am not going to pay my bill this month because you guys are awful and I have discovered that you are engaged in corrupt business practices, that would not fly. Like, they would not care. They would just shut off your electricity, and then you wouldn't have any electricity, and in most situations you can't, you know, get it connected to something else overnight. Um, again, because we deal in a world where these are faceless corporations that, you know, have no have no person to interact with, the relationship is very different. But notice here that these obligations are on this sliding scale. What uh, Aristotle is ultimately going to conclude is that we are going to give people what they deserve. We're going to give the father the honors that the father deserves. We're going to give the mother the honor the mother deserves. We're going to, you know, do the proper honors to old people and to the young. Like, instead of rather recognizing all obligations as being equally valid, all debts being equally worthy of being repaid, Aristotle very much prioritizes them according to the worth of the person involved. Virtue is everything for Aristotle. One's worth is entirely dependent on their virtue, and people who are virtuous should be treated better than people who are not. Um, and there are reasons for this as we go further along. Um, in fact, like, Aristotle is going to talk about this quite a bit in this chapter, and we're going to get a rather more significant glance or glimpse of exactly how this relationship of virtue is supposed to work and what its effects are on the people who are virtuous as well as the people who are vicious. Um, This is hugely important in Greek society. Like, you do have a greater debt to people who are better than you than you do to the people who are worse than you. This is what Aristotle assumes. And that isn't just a matter of, like, economic situation, like poor people versus rich people, although Aristotle is very quick to sort of acknowledge um, the difference between, like, the base or common folk as opposed to the noble or the wealthy. He is definitely what we would call classist, but this is also something that the Greeks very much take for granted. Like, in other places throughout um, Greek writing, you will find that the Greeks generally assume that a person who is attractive is also a good person. This is actually what makes Alcibiades' situation so unusual and unpredictable to the Greeks. Um, as we talked about in the symposium, that metaphor of the Silenus statue, where it looks like an ugly, drunken dude, but then you open up the, the, in the uh, like, box or whatever, and there's this beautiful god or goddess inside. And Socrates is compared to, you know, the ugly dude who is actually beautiful on the inside, whereas Alcibiades, the suggestion is that he's the really beautiful dude who's actually really ugly on the inside. This is a very new idea to the ancient Greeks, and to the Romans for that matter. In most cases, right uh, the great writers who are sort of observing human nature and sort of speaking to uh, the virtue's nobility philosophy, they tend to agree that people look the way that they are on the inside on the outside as well. Virtuous people are handsome and beautiful, while ugly people are vicious and monstrous. In general, the Greeks consider the gods to be, at least for the most part, just. So, if you are, in fact, rich and famous and accomplished, that's an indication that the gods have favor on you, presumably because you are wealthy. Like, this goes back even to the Old Testament conversation that we were having, where we talked about Job, and poor Job, who, you know, is perfectly saintly and does everything right, but bad things keep happening to him anyway, and his friends immediately jump to the conclusion that he's done something horrible to offend the gods, or specifically, in this case, to offend God the Greeks would have a very similar attitude. If, in fact, you know, Priam, rich and powerful, handsome and accomplished, wise, blessed beyond all others, has the entirety of his city fall down around his ears, you would be right to assume that Priam had offended the gods in some way, specifically by Paris abducting Helen, in this case. You know, he brought it on himself, is the way they talk about it. The Greeks have this really important concept, hubris, which is sort of like a pride before the gods. Literally, it just means to like stand taller than the rest of the people around you, which has the insinuation of, yes, you're raising yourself up above others, but also the way that like a tall tree is the first one to be struck by lightning. Um, You are setting yourself up for failure. You are setting yourself up for the attention of the gods and therefore to be destroyed. Virtue is an indication of your appropriateness to your situation. A rich person being virtuous doesn't surprise anyone in ancient Greece. The more beautiful, the more wealthy, the more accomplished, the more famous, the more honorable a person is, the more virtuous they must necessarily be in order to, you know, have earned all of these great accomplishments from the gods. Likewise, if a person has a sudden reversal and they're now a beggar, the immediate assumption is, what did you do to offend the gods? What did you do to, you know, deserve your situation? As much as Aristotle and Plato are in fact sort of exploring the possibility that this assumption is not true, they are still very much indebted to it. And you can see this kind of peeking through here where Aristotle is talking about this, where he's emphasizing that we should be treating people according to their status, their situation. Treat old people the way that they deserve. Treat your father the way that he deserves. Treat bad people the way that they deserve. Do not give them the time of day prioritize them lower than all of your other obligations, because they don't deserve to be treated like a human being, in short, um, as tricksy as this is going to be in practice. Uh, But let's move on to section three. There is also a puzzle about dissolving or not dissolving friendships with friends who do not remain the same. With friends for utility or pleasure, perhaps there is nothing absurd in dissolving the friendship whenever they are no longer pleasant or useful. For if they were friends of pleasure or utility, and if these give out, and it is not, it is reasonable not to love. Notice that this is something that we kind of talked about last time um, and sort of addressed last time. Um. In the assumption that many of these friendships, in fact, most friendships, are based on either pleasure or utility, and it is only the rarer friendship that is based on virtue, and therefore should be able to endure, Aristotle is definitely not upset by a friendship that just sort of fizzles out because the people aren't providing the service or the pleasure that they used to. This is perfectly normal for Aristotle. Uh, the one caveat he does make in this section is that we should recognize past friends, um, like. That, you know, if we were in fact friends at one point, specifically friends of virtue, um, even if that person suddenly becomes vicious, suddenly loses the path, suddenly, you know, does not deserve our attention or our friendship anymore, we should still retain, I guess, a kind of affection for them. Um, As he says, this is around line 32 on page 55, "...then should the better person regard the other as though he had never become his friend? Surely he must keep some memory of the familiarity they had, and just as we think we should do kindnesses for friends more than for strangers, so also we should accord something to past friends because of the former friendship, whenever excessive vice does not cause the dissolution." So even if you were friends and now are not, it's probably a good idea to retain a little bit of preferential treatment, more than you would for an actual stranger. That's what Aristotle seems to be suggesting here. But that said, notice that he does make the caveat, unless it was because of excessive vice. If you were friends with someone, friends of virtue, complete friends, if you were living your life together and the other person did something truly abominable, like if he did patricide or if he, you know, committed a horrific crime against the state the way that Alcibiades does, if he just gives up on virtue and, you know, gives himself over to gambling or drunkenness or something like that and is no longer a fit companion, then yes you are perfectly within your rights to disregard that person, to to, like chuck them out of your house and never talk to them again. And Aristotle would even advise that you do that, like don't be sentimental, this person deserves what they're getting. But as for the case of, you know, friendships of pleasure, friend- friendships of utility, yeah, they're supposed to die when their time has run out. Like, when the utility, when the service that your friend is providing is no longer useful, like, if they are not going to continue making shoes for you, then you don't need to be their friends. You don't need to be nice to them anymore. You don't need to perform favors for them or, or be especially generous to them. Uh, that friendship has run its course. You are not getting what you expect and therefore they are not getting what they expect and And that's the way that this friendship was built, so it's okay. Um, Again, a lot of these friendships are very transactional in Aristotle's perspective. They are basically just economic relationships, Uh, so if somebody is not holding up their end of the deal, you are well within your rights to not hold up your end either. Uh, Now, the next thing that Aristotle gets rather caught up with in section four has to do with the relationship between you and your friends and you and yourself. Uh, which is kind of a weird abstract place for this to wind up, like this is, you know, not something that we would probably think of terribly much, but it introduces some really interesting ideas that Aristotle is playing with and gives us a little bit more insight into the way that Aristotle understands both virtue and baseness, um, like poor behavior or viciousness. Um, So notice what he says here uh, at the very uh, top of the, the chapter, around 1166a on page 55, Um, The defining features of friendship that are found in friendships to one's neighbors would seem to be derived from features of a friendship towards oneself. For a friend is taken to be one, someone who wishes and does goods or apparent goods to his friend for the friend's own sake, or two, one who wishes the friend to be and to live for the friend's own sake. This is how mothers feel towards their children, and how friends who have been in conflict feel towards each other. Three, others take a friend to be one who spends his time with his friend, and four, makes the same choices, or five, one whose friends shares his friend's distress and enjoyment. And this also is true especially of mothers, and people define friendship by one of these features. And I'm pretty sure the numbers are actually being added here by our translator, like Aristotle in general does not include numbers in the the course of the text, but they're actually really useful, so thank you Mr. Irwin for this particular translation uh, assistance. Um, And Aristotle does typically think this way, like he will list four or five things and then specifically refer to them, and you'll notice that Urwin refers to those specific elements, number four, number one, number two, in the, in the foregoing or in the following paragraphs. Uh, but notice the way that this section is constructed. On the one hand, Aristotle is kind of investigating this question, you know, do we treat good friends the way that we treat ourselves? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves in some way? Um, This idea has very much kind of permeated across the, the Western world, as even though like we saw it in the Old Testament, and that's probably one of its, maybe one of its earliest forms. It's it's Trixie. Again, we get into that whole like, who you know, who, when did this book get written thing with the Bible? And we definitely don't have time for that conversation now. Um, suffice it to say that the idea is not totally original to the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure Hammurabi's Code has something rather similar in it, though it's been a while since I've read it. Um, I know that the Eastern texts and philosophies have something very similar, like Confucius himself said, you know, do not do unto others what you would not have done to you, which is again, like just the golden rule in reverse. Um, So this idea is very clear here, like we are comparing our friendships to our relationship with oneself. But notice where this leads Aristotle. On the one hand, he very much points out that in a virtuous friendship, in in a decent person's relation to himself, all of these features apply, and he lists them. Um, Yes, the excellent person is of one mind with himself. Yes, he wishes goods and apparent goods to himself. Yes, he wishes himself to live and to be preserved. Like, yes, you want that for yourself and you want that for your good friends. Um, So as he concludes on page 56 around line 30, the decent person then has each of these features in relation to himself and is related to his friend as he is to himself, since the friend is another himself. This is an important idea for Aristotle, and you'll see it come up frequently in this chapter. A friend is just another self. You are happy when they are happy. You are sad when they are sad. You want to see them accomplish great things just as you want to see yourself accomplish great things. Um, They are, in essence, another self. You are conjoined in some sense. Um, Just as the Bible stresses that, you know, when a husband and wife get together, they become one flesh. The insinuation here is that you and your friend are one. Um, Everything that benefits one of you will benefit the other as well, and everything that hurts one of you will hurt the other as well. You enjoy and suffer from everything that the other person does as well. But notice that this is also how you characterize your relationship to yourself, that there is a sort of two selves. Like Aristotle explicitly says, someone is two or more parts in the next paragraph. We do relate to ourselves, Aristotle is stressing, and we have to treat ourselves well. And importantly, this too is an act of virtue. Um, because, as he goes on around 1166b, the many, base though they are, also appear to have these features. They are interested in their own accomplishments. But perhaps they share in them only insofar as they approve of themselves and suppose they are decent. For no one who is utterly bad and unscrupulous either has these features or appears to have them. Indeed, even base people hardly have them. And notice how he changes the way that he talks about these five features instead of being at one with themselves, in agreement with themselves, bad people are at odds with themselves. Instead of choosing what is best for themselves, bad people choose pleasant things that are actually harmful, and cowardice or laziness causes others to shrink from doing what they think best for themselves. Um, Even as he says when he gets to the top of page 57, those who have done many terrible actions hate and shun life because of their vice and destroy themselves. Um, So he concludes right, right around line 25 on page 57 that the base person appears not to have a friendly attitude, even towards himself, because he has nothing lovable about him. Now I want to sort of jump forward because he's going to sort of pick up on this a little bit later around uh, section 8 in chapter 9. So let's jump ahead to, to page 60 where he develops this idea a little more. But notice that this too is also a fairly common ancient idea and it's very much going to inform the medieval perspective. This idea that a bad person is at war with themselves. It's not just a matter of selfishness. And importantly, Aristotle makes this extremely explicit in uh, section 8. So, he starts out by saying, there is also a puzzle about whether one ought to love oneself or someone else most of all. For those who like themselves most are criticized and denounced as self-lovers, as though this were something shameful. Now, this is something that we probably should acknowledge. Like, this is basically a discussion about selfishness. Is it good or bad to be selfish? Um, And generally, we all agree selfishness is bad, and Aristotle points out, yeah, that's that's what most people think in, in ancient Greece as well. If you are prioritizing your own good over that of your friends or your family or the people you care about, that's a bad thing. But notice that he quickly qualifies this. Um, Indeed, the base person does seem to go to every length for his own sake, and all the more, the more vicious he is. Hence, he is accused, for example, of doing nothing of his own accord. The decent person, on the contrary, acts for what is fine. All the more, the better he is, and for his friend's sake, disregarding his own good. The facts, however, conflict with these claims, and that is not unreasonable. For it is said that we must love most the friend who is most a friend, and one person is most a friend to another if he wishes goods to the other for the other's sake, even if no one will know about it. But these are features most of all of one's relation to oneself, and so too are all the other defining features of a friend, since we have said that all the features of friendship extend from oneself to others. Now, remember what we talked about last time, how we sort of discussed the nature of virtue and how we are aspiring to happiness. We talked about how money can't possibly be the ultimate good that we're seeking. It is only good insofar as it sort of contributes to our happiness. Aristotle is very much pursuing this here. Um, He is pointing out that bad people supposedly want things for themselves, but in fact end up hurting themselves by doing it and hating themselves as a consequence, as he said, suggested before. Um, so they are self-loving, but it's not proper self-love. They're not loving themselves properly. So notice at around the middle of page 61, around line 15, he says, perhaps then it will become clear if we grasp how those on each side understand self-love. Those who make self-love a matter for reproach ascribe it to those who award the biggest share in money, honors, and bodily pleasures to themselves, for these are the goods desired and eagerly pursued by the many on the assumption that they are best, and hence they are also contested. Those who are greedy for these goods gratify their appetites and, in general, their feelings in the non-rational part of the soul. And since this is the character of the many, the application of the term self-love is derived from the most frequent kind of self-love, which is base. This type of self-lover, then, is justifiably reproached. Plainly, it is the person who awards himself these goods whom the many habitually call a self-lover, for if someone is always eager to excel everyone in doing just or temperate actions, or any others expressing the virtues, and in general always gains for himself what is fine, no one will call that person a self-lover or blame him for it. Notice the distinction that he's making here between the base on the one hand and the virtuous on the other the base have self-love insofar as they're amassing worldly goods for themselves. They want all of the money. They want all of the honor. They want all of the power. They want all of the glory. Um, They want all of, you know, the the favor from, from various people. And notice that Aristotle is really critical of this. This is base behavior. People who are virtuous do not behave this way. But at the same time, the people who do excel at virtue, who stand out in doing just or temperate actions, these are also actions of self love, but nobody is upset with the people who perform them. There is a distinction here between the selfish, the people who just want the external goods for themselves, and the self-loving, the people who want to make themselves as good as they possibly can be. The people who are seeking what we talked about, happiness, eudaimonia, self-perfection, like the self-excellence. That's not selfish, or at the very least, if it is, it's not worth reproaching, Aristotle is pointing out. A virtuous man may very well be selfish insofar as that person is pursuing personal virtue, is trying to become the best versions of themselves they can be, but that's a totally different animal from the guy who's just sweeping up all the money and all the power. That person is base, and notice that he very much allies the base with the many. The many want the money and the power, but that's not good to want. The virtuous do not want these things. They get them, they need them to some degree, but they don't seek them greedily. Instead, they cultivate their own virtue, they practice these excellences, they perfect themselves, and in so doing perform what is really a much greater self-love. So notice that on page 62, where he's sort of culminating on this, He says the good person must be a self-lover, since he will both help himself and benefit others by doing fine actions. But the vicious person must not love himself, since he will harm both himself and his neighbors by following his base feelings. By chasing after wealth, by chasing after power, the bad person is in fact hurting themselves, doing something self-destructive. This base idea that you want to amass all this wealth, all this power, all this glory to yourself, really just does nothing but harm to you. And this is an idea that both the ancient Greeks hold very seriously and that the medievals are going to develop on as well. But I also want you to think about this in terms of our own culture and our our own ideas. Like, we too have a sort of recognition that there is, you know, nothing good in selfishness, that what we seek is selflessness. But notice, too, that Aristotle categorizes selflessness in the vicinity of self-love. The very next paragraph, he says that the decent person, however, does the right action since every under- since every understanding chooses what is best for itself, and the decent person obeys his understanding. Besides, it is true that, as they say, the excellent person labors for his friends and for his native country and will die for them if he must. He will sacrifice money, honors, and contested goods in general in achieving what is fine, for himself. For he will choose intense pleasure for a short time over mild pleasure for a long time, a year of living finely over many years of undistinguished life, and a single fine and great action over many small actions. This is presumably true of one who dies for others. He does indeed choose something great and fine for himself. He is ready to sacrifice money as long as his friends profit, for the friends gain money while he gains what is fine, and so he awards himself the greater good notice what aristotle is talking about here he is saying that self-sacrifice giving up your goods to others you know giving your money or your power to the state to the nation to the army however you want even throwing your life away for the sake of your friends for your family for your country that is at the end of the day a selfish act not in the same sense as the greedy person heaping up wealth for themselves no this is fineness according to Aristotle. This is goodness. This is a person winning for themselves honor and recognition, and honor and recognition from a pure source. This is, in essence, an act of self-love, an act of sort of glorifying yourself beyond what riches and honors and worldly possessions and goods can actually accomplish for you. And this, again, is something that the, the Greeks believed very firmly, Like, yes, if you give your life in battle, you will do so for your own purposes, for yourself. Like, even in the, the Iliad, which, again, like, for this week, you should have watched the, the two videos from Extra Mythology about Achilles and Patroclus and their relationship, as well as sort of like Achilles' dilemma about is he going to die or is he going to, you know, fight for his friend. At the end of the day, Achilles does sacrifice his own life for the sake of Patroclus, and in doing so, wins all of the honor to himself. Like, we still read the Iliad in mythology classes and classics classes today. Like, 2,500, 3,000 years later, Achilles is still a name that many of us know. It is still an act of selflessness that we all recognize. Achilles, in giving up his life, achieved something much greater. Achieved a lasting honor, an immortality in a sense, in the same way that Plato's kind of describing in the Symposium. Um, remember, like, love is an act that is seeking immortality. That's very much the thesis of Diatima's whole speech. Um, You can definitely apply that to Achilles, who loves Patroclus so much that it inspires him to give up his life, and in doing so, achieve lasting poetic immortality. Um, Aristotle is talking about something very similar here. He is saying that self-love, true self-love, transcends all those worldly possessions that we think we want, that the base, the the bad people, the many seek to have. Instead, what we should be looking for are opportunities to practice our virtue, to sort of demonstrate our goodness, to seek find in this sense. And in so doing, it's not an act of selflessness the way that our culture usually characterizes it. Dying for your loved one is, at the end of the day, an act of selfishness. It glorifies the self as far as Aristotle is concerned. It's not as cut and dry as living for yourself versus living for another. Living for yourself usually means living for others. And notice that the way that the bad people are characterized here, they are self-destructive. They hate themselves because they aren't doing those fine things. Yes, they have all the money in the world and they can live a sort of pleasant, comfortable existence, but at what cost, Aristotle is asking? Um, they are, you know, trying to win for themselves this this long life and the lap of luxury. But what is it really worth if nobody respects or cares about them? If they can't even respect themselves in the process? Aristotle is arguing that greedy people, bad people, are never happy. And this is a tricky sort of question for us to face, I think, um, especially in our culture. Like this is something that we kind of bump up against a lot. Um, we frequently have this sort of, we we want this to be true. Like, we want Aristotle to be right and for, you know, bad people to never win, for, for good people to always triumph, for justice to always pay off, and for injustice to always be punished. We always want to see, you know, the rich people who preyed on the weak and the poor get their just desserts and not be able to sleep at night. Um, And yet, this often isn't the case in our society, or at the very least, we don't believe it strongly enough to think that this is the case. Like, we hear stories about multi-billionaires who, you know, exploit their workers or who, you know, use illegal labor or who don't pay their taxes and seem to do perfectly comfortably and are perfectly all right with themselves. Aristotle would argue that they are dead inside. Uh, Aristotle would argue that anyone who is, you know, acting viciously to achieve worldly success, is at the end of the day far, far away from this ideal of excellence or happiness, this eudaimonia that he's talking about here in the Nicomachean Ethics, They have been punished. Not they will be punished in some, you know, far-flung heaven or, or hell or whatever. He does not attribute this to the afterlife. They are punished now, They are punished by being vicious, by continuing in their viciousness. Their viciousness punishes them itself. Uh, By being a bad person, they become miserable, and by becoming miserable, they become more bad. It is a never-ending cycle. In the same way that by being good, one becomes happy, and by being happy, one becomes more apt to do good. Um, both of these are sort of self-perpetuating. That's why he emphasizes the role of habit so much in the cultivation of virtue. The more virtue you have, the easier it is to do virtuous things, and the more you appreciate the virtuous things that you are accomplishing, the more you benefit from them. Likewise, or rather contrariwise, the people who are bad get into bad habits and are increasingly likely to destroy themselves, suffer more with every depraved action they take. And notice too that this is also recognizes this division between the many and the few, the base and the virtuous. Um, nobility, for Aristotle, includes virtue. If you are a landowner, if you are, you know, a person who is practicing philosophy, if you are cultivated, that means that you are pursuing virtue, and it is a practice and perspective that is reserved to a select few the people who, you know, have ears to hear, as Jesus would say. Um, it's not a common trait. It's not something everyone can do, or at the very least, given the option, most people are going to turn it down. Most people are going to say, what you were talking about is nonsense. I would rather make my money, have something that I can believe in, you know, have worldly power, worldly wealth, worldly accomplishments, and rather than your fuzzy abstract nonsense that doesn't actually mean anything in the end. Uh, But again, most philosophers at this time are saying something similar. Plato has tons of dialogues like the Gorgias, like the Republic, where he's stressing that people who are bad are hurting themselves, no matter how many worldly goods they seem to take For themselves in the process the romans absolutely buy into this we will talk about it when we get to the stoics and the christians will too obviously their entire theology is based on this idea that you will in fact be punished for whatever bad deeds you do in this life whether that's in the afterlife or you know in now will kind of depend from theologian to theologian but most of the medievals most of the medieval christian philosophers are going to agree with aristotle Um, the person who does bad things will make themselves miserable in this life, never mind the potential punishment of hell. Uh, But we'll talk about that later. Um, Now, the next question that he wants to address here, and we will, in fact, like, bop back to the discussion of goodwill and and, um, the Concord, uh, but I want to sort of treat them as a unit in, like, this sort of deals much more closely with what we've been talking about. Um, The next question that he asks is, there is also a dispute about whether the happy person will need friends or not. For it is said that blessedly happy and self-sufficient people have no need of friends, for they already have all the goods, and hence being self-sufficient need nothing added. But your friend, since he is another yourself, supplies what your own efforts cannot supply. Notice this same idea that, he, that we were talking about just a moment ago, this idea that the friend is another self, that you are one with your friend, that when your friend succeeds, you succeed. When your friend is happy, you are happy. When your friend is miserable, you are miserable. And therefore, all of your joys and all of your miseries are multiplied by having a friend. Um, what he is very much stressing here, and he, you know, we have this long pair of syllogisms on page 64 and 65, where Erwin has been nice enough to uh, sort of enumerate every single one of the points that he's using, and this probably was the way that it was formatted for Aristotle, like he might not have used the numbers, I, I didn't check my Greek text that closely on this one, uh, but at the very least, like Aristotle, this is a classic Aristotelian syllogism, sort of going from point to point. Uh, And notice that his conclusions very much are the blessed person, no matter how happy they are, will seek and need virtuous friends. But notice the argumentation that he uses here. Uh, Let's look at this first syllogism on page 64. Uh, First, for we said at the beginning that happiness is a kind of activity, and clearly activity comes into being and does not belong to someone all the time as a possession does. Being happy, then, is found in living and being active. Two, the activity of the good person is excellent and hence pleasant in itself, as we said at the beginning. Three, moreover, what is our own is pleasant. Four, we are able to observe our neighbors more than ourselves and to observe their actions more than our own. Five, hence a good person finds pleasure in the actions of excellent people who are his friends, since these actions have both the naturally pleasant features, that is, they are good and they are his own. Um, six, the blessed person decides to observe virtuous actions that are his own. The actions of a virtuous friend of, are of this sort. Therefore, seven, he, hence he will need virtuous friends. Now, this actually goes back to an idea that we sort of skipped over back in chapter eight. Um, and I kind of want to bounce back there real fast to sort of point out what's going on here. Um, if we look back at, this is chapter, oh, good heavens, uh, book eight, chapter seven. Nope, Book 8, Chapter 8. Um, right around pain, the bottom of page 39 into page 40. Um, you'll notice right at the beginning of Book 8, Chapter 8, he said he mentions flatterers. Um, It is because they love honor that the many seem to prefer being loved to loving. That is why they love flatterers. For the flatterer is a friend in an inferior position, or rather, pretends to be one, and pretends to love more than he is loved. And being loved seems close to being honored, which the many do indeed pursue. It would seem, however, that they choose honor coincidentally, not in itself. For the many enjoy being honored by powerful people because they expect to get whatever they need from them, and so enjoy the honor as a sign of this good treatment. But if we jump down a little bit farther, uh, down to line 25 on page 40, it says, Being loved, on the contrary, they enjoy in itself. Hence it seems to be better than being honored, and friendship seems choice-worthy in itself. But friendship seems to consist more in loving than in being loved. A sign of this is the enjoyment a mother finds in loving, for sometimes she gives her child a way to be brought up and loves him as long as she knows about him, but she does not seek the child's love if she cannot both love and be loved. So he concludes in the next paragraph, friendship then consists more in loving, and people who love their friends are praised. Hence it would seem loving is the virtue of friends. Notice it's kind of quiet and subtle and the grammar doesn't really make it stand out all that much, but notice that Aristotle is using the active voice here. Loving is more important to friendship, is more indicative of virtue than being loved is. Everybody wants to be loved. Aristotle, you know, admits that freely. That's why flatterers are so successful. Like, if somebody tells you that you're awesome, naturally you're going to think, hmm, this person has very good taste. Of course I'm awesome. Like, obviously, you're very wise to sort that out for yourself. Um, But this is bullshit. Like, we shouldn't trust flatterers. People who want to get on our good side by flattering us are dangerous. Um, They don't actually care about us the way their virtuous friend does. They do not have that central characteristic of virtuous friendships, i.e. caring about another person for their own sake, for their own purposes. You know, what Aristotle is describing here, where good friends basically are one person, where, you know, you suffer their their ills and enjoy their their triumphs, you know, that's not something that a flatterer experiences. The flatterer is just saying that he loves you in order to get stuff from you. like Aristotle has been talking about the base and the many all of this time, this is more characteristic of the many, the base, the people who are selfish and greedy, the people who want worldly possessions and do not recognize that the true goods of the world are in virtue and accomplishment. But more importantly, notice that virtue is stressed as being active here in page 40 and here in page 64. Um, In both cases, Aristotle, Aristotle is pointing out that it is more pleasant more virtuous, more happy to do these things, to love another person, to care about another person, to do good things for another person, than it is to receive good things from another person. In fact, he's kind of, he kind of gets at this even more when he's talking a little bit later about um, like the, the beneficence being the recipient of, of good deeds, as opposed to like doing good deeds to others. Uh, this is actually back in, uh, in section seven, after the discussion of Concord, we skipped over it in order to get here. He mentions that it is way easier to give people favors, to like lend people money, Or to lend people power or to do something nice for another person than it is to be the recipient of nice things and as a consequence while benefactors will love the the beneficiaries of their their generousness in general the beneficiaries the people who receive that generosity are gonna resent it and want to sort of pay them back and get out from under this debt Um, There is no love between the beneficiary and the benefactor, but there is lots of love from the benefactor to the beneficiary. Um, Again, being active is incredibly important to virtue for Aristotle. Friendship is something you do, not something you have. It is not a state. It is something that you must actively accomplish, and it will be most rewarding when you do. Um, This I suspect is another slap in the face for our contemporary culture. Like in general we tend to think that friends are not something you're supposed to work at. Like friendship is something that you do to unwind. Friendship is something that you enjoy the benefits of. Like you all go out drinking together and it's good because there's no expectations and you just do what you want and you feel most comfortable around them. But in actual fact, like a true friendship, as Aristotle is describing it here, is not you know friends overlook you when you are doing bad things. But on the consequent, or on the contrary, friendship, real friendship, is when you are willing to do good things for another person. Um, it is when you are willing to be generous, when you are willing to reach out to them, when you are willing to help them when they are in a fix. Um, it is more indicative of virtue when you are helping them, when you are being generous to them, when you are being friendly to them, when you are reaching out to them, than it is when you are just sort of enjoying your time together for whatever the, the case may be. And this is kind of borne out by ex- our experience too. Like, if you take advantage of your friends too often, if you, you know, do get totally drunk and make a fool of yourself in front of them on a regular basis, in general, they're going to eventually not put up with it anymore. They're going to be upset with you. Um, you need to be You need to be able to offer them the same generosity, the same forgiveness, the same kindness, the same willingness to overlook their faults that they are willing to do with you. Um, You have to be a participant in this. You cannot just ride on the wave of good feeling here. If you are not willing to put in the work, your friendship is going to only last for as long as the pleasure lasts, or as long as the utility lasts, as Aristotle would suggest here. Um, True friendship, real friendship, friendship that is praised and praiseworthy, is friendship that is active, that is doing something, that is, you know, keeping that friendship alive, that is acting the way a friend is expected to act. It is much more an an indication of virtue when you are doing friendship than when you are receiving it or when you are just enjoying it. Um, Now some of that I'm sure like some of our cultural assumptions here have to do with the fact that we don't have a whole lot of friends that are friendships of virtue the way that Aristotle is describing it describing it. Like the relationship that I just described where you go out to a bar with a bunch of friends and you all make fools of yourselves and you all just do what you want, that's very much in the territory of friendship of pleasure, as Aristotle would see it. Um, that is you enjoy their company they give you pleasure and you receive pleasure from them and it's only going to last as long as that's the case the minute one of you can no longer afford to go out on friday nights because you've got kids or responsibilities or a job or whatever that friendship is going to evaporate in an instant um, even if it's something as simple as like the friend moved to the next state and no longer wants to drive out to the bar with you it uh, doesn't matter anymore You're, you don't have that connection Um, The things that you enjoy doing together, you can no longer enjoy, and therefore that person is now useless to you. You never cared about them for themselves. You cared about the pleasure you had in their company, Um, which is not to say that all friendships are like this. Again, you know, I'm making sweeping generalizations here when it's not necessarily warranted, but that's, I think, one of the things that our culture could stand to learn from Aristotle here, Um, Friendships that are worthwhile, friendships that are rewarding, friendships that actually do pay dividends and make you feel good about yourself, friendships that actually advance you as a person, make you better than you were, are friendships that you take an active role in. And obviously, if you're going to become a better person, you're going to do it faster by taking a more active role in the relationship that you have with your friends, in the relationship that you have with others across the board. That's just plain sense. Which makes sense because Aristotle is absolutely the plain-sense philosopher, like everything that just makes common sense is kind of exactly what Aristotle's purview is. Um, He makes more sense than most of the philosophers we will be interacting with over the course of the semester. Now the next syllogism I don't think is nearly as sort of insightful or valuable. Um, There are some really interesting points here where he's arguing that like You know, why would you want an excellent friend as an excellent person? Like if you've already got, you know, your virtuous friends, whatever. Um, But notice that he kind of goes through this idea that life is good and pleasant in itself. And therefore, by enjoying the life of your friend, you are enjoying two lives and therefore, you know, enjoying the, the pleasantness of both yeah, that kind of holds up, but it's sort of a roundabout way of getting at what he's already said, I think. It's a little repetitive, maybe. Um, if there is a nuance here, it's it's not one that I fully appreciate. Um, but nonetheless, I do think that he's got a really good sort of point to be made here. That, A, on the one hand, yes, we need friends. We want friends. Nobody is complete without friends. Um, no, like and Nobody wants to be isolated, no matter how perfect they are. Like, that's very much something that the christians are going to be sort of tinkering with when we get into like hermits and monasteries and stuff but even then just that's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother day um suffice it to say that like in common sense having friends is a good thing Uh, But also, B, like, he's sort of pointing out that the proper expression of happiness, the proper expression of virtuousness, um, the proper way to be eudaimonia, to, to have this personal excellence, is it has to go somewhere. Like, you have to do something with it you could be an entirely perfect person and just sit in a dark room for hours on end, and it wouldn't do anybody any good, and your virtue would rot at the vine. Um, In order for your virtue to be expressed, you have to have somebody to express it to, and friends are the natural recipients of that virtue, Um, which is not to say that you're better than your friends in any extent of the imagination, and I would imagine that Aristotle actually has a pretty profound place for, you know, people who are pursuing virtue at roughly the same level and who are, you know, generously giving to one another equally as a consequence of their virtue. But notice, too, that Aristotle is kind of more likely pointing to those unbalanced, those asymmetrical friendships, those friendships where one person is the superior and one person is the inferior, kind of like the pederastic relationship that Socrates was talking about back in in the symposium, but even on a sort of more basic level, like people who have power and influence should express that power and influence by giving that power and influence to the people who don't have it and who deserve it. The... Um, the virtuous people who do not enjoy all of those benefits the non-blessed virtuous people um so it is sort of the responsibility the obligation of a wealthy virtuous happy person to you know shower other virtuous people that they identify with gifts and with generosity with power with influence with favors um, And as a consequence, sort of raise them up, make them able to do the same going forward. That's kind of the model that Aristotle is working with here. We are paying our favors forward. Uh, We are absolutely benefiting the state by raising up people who will continue to be virtuous. This is how you get a government that is primarily composed of good kings rather than allowing tyrants to sneak in just because you're going to take whoever just happens to be related to said good king the model that both the Greeks and the Romans tend to adopt, and which kind of works, um, is that you, the virtuous leader, are going to pick a virtuous successor. Um, You're not just going to, like, keep it in the family. You're going to give it to the person who deserves it most. Heck, even the Christians are going to follow this model. Like, when the pope picks a new pope, they get to elect that pope personally. They're going to, like, say, that guy that guy i recognize that guy or that guy's virtue or i recognize the godliness of that guy and therefore that person should be the next pope Um, Obviously this will change in like much more recently, like the 13th, 14th century, where it's now the cardinals that pick the pope, but that's again a whole other conversation for a whole other class. Um, Suffice it to say that this is the model that's going to be dominant for a lot of generations to come, the entire ancient world in a sense. The idea that virtuous people will raise up virtuous people and put them on positions of power, positions of influence, that they will bestow on the virtuous needy, the things that they need to succeed in this life. That's the theory here. Um, That's the model that Aristotle is writing from, and the model that he is prescribing in this writing. Um, Now, the next section we're just going to finish, and then we're going to hop back to our, our sort of verbal arguments on concord and and goodwill. Um, The next section he asks is, do we need friends more in good fortune or in ill fortune? Um, And he very quickly kind of answers this question. Certainly it is more necessary to have friends in ill fortune, and hence useful friends are needed here, but it is finer to have them in good fortune, and hence we also seek decent friends, for it is more choice worthy to do good to them and spend our time with them. Um, Notice this is absolutely sort of an offshoot of what we've talked about before, this idea that, you know, you are best expressing, most perfectly expressing your virtue when you are being generous to others, when you are bestowing favors on others, and therefore in good fortune is just as important as getting help from someone when things have gone badly for you. Um, I also skipped section 10 for some mad reason, not entirely sure why. Um, This is probably one of the actually most fascinating questions, especially to our own culture. Um, And Aristotle puts it very bluntly. Um, Then should we have as many friends as possible, he asks um, on page 66, right at chapter 9, or book 9, chapter 10. Or is it the same as with the friendship of host and guest, where it seems to be good advice to have neither many nor none? is this also good advice in friendship to have neither no friends nor many? And I think that this is especially insightful for Aristotle just because, like, in our culture especially, I think it's a big dilemma for most of us exactly how many friendships we're supposed to kind of cultivate and maintain at any given time. Um, Like, I mentioned before that I think that we are very much suffering a dearth of true virtuous friendships, that is really hard to sort of, you know, live life with one another the way that the ancient Greeks are very clearly prescribing here. Um, But at the same time, we are very prone to just letting our Facebook feed fill up with hundreds, if not thousands of, quote, friends, who we are all always, you know, saying our happy birthdays to, and, and occasionally liking the stuff that they post, but we have, like, no other interaction with them. Um, that, too, seems kind of a bit of a problem. Like, that's not a real friendship. That seems awfully shallow, especially by Aristotle's definition. Like, what are you even getting out of that friendship, much less offering at that point? Um, like, what is what is the actual relationship between you and, and your Facebook friends in that sense? Um, we have the power to retain friendships long after the pleasure or the utility has, has sort of faded away. And where Aristotle would be quick to be like, well, then drop them, dissolve the friendship. That's what it's supposed to be. The person is no longer useful to you, no longer pleasant to you, then drop them like a hot potato. But our culture says, whoa, don't be like that. That's a human being. But the fact of the matter is we don't have enough time to really devote, like, seriously to a multitude of potential people. Um, Like, even psychologists these days, the way that I've heard it most recently, is that, like, you typically have 150 max core friends. When you make new friends, old friends will naturally sort of fall away, but you basically have the brain capacity to deal with just that hundred or fifty people, give or take, and that's it. Like, whoever else you're interacting with on Facebook is on this cursory fashion. Whoever, whatever other people you're following on Instagram, like, it's not deep. It's not meaningful. Um, It's just for the sake of, like, a very temporary high, totally disconnected from the person in question. Um, This is what Aristotle's kind of talking about here. He is saying that there is no magic number, and for the psychologist, there is no magic number. Different people have different numbers. Like, I'm a hardcore introvert, so I wouldn't be surprised if my number is closer to, like, 50 instead of 150, while my sister is a hardcore extrovert, and I wouldn't be surprised if her number is closer to 300 than 150. Um, This is just the way that people are, I suspect. Um, But with that in mind, notice that there is a sort of give and take to both extremes here. Like, if you are dividing your attention amongst a wide variety of people, you're kind of doing everybody involved a disservice, not least of which is yourself, because, yeah, you can rely on, you know, the same sort of cursory attention from these people when, in fact, things turn around and you need help, but you also can't actually rely on them for the big things. You can't, you know, trust them in a way to, like, talk seriously with them. In general, we probably have a close knot of friends at any given moment, which may very much change over time, just again because of circumstances, differing interests, um, people falling away from each other for a variety of reasons. Um, What Aristotle is very much suggesting is keep it close, keep it tight, don't try and be friends with everybody. And in fact, he even has one particularly, you know, keen line um, that like, he says on page um on 67 this would seem to be borne out what people actually do for the friendship of companions is not found in groups of many people and the friendships celebrated in song are always between two people by contrast those who have many friends and treat everyone as close to them seem to be friends to no one except in a fellow citizen's way these people are regarded as ingratiating and I don't think that's untrue now either. The people who are super friendly, who everybody sort of likes and who likes everybody, at the same time tend to be kind of unreliable and flaky when you actually need them for something, when there's actually something that you, you want from them or some help that you want from them. Um, the best friends are also kind of the worst friends in this situation. And I suspect that they have their own problems in trying to sort out their lives. Like, if you listening to this are one of those people who are just trying to be friendly to absolutely everybody, Aristotle is telling you to stop. Um, like, it's probably not good for you. It's probably not great to be a people pleaser. And for that matter, like, people aren't going to, people might not actually be all that happy about it. Um Like, obviously, every person's situation is different if you are sitting there thinking, oh my god, that's me! Like, again, please, no self-diagnosis, and I'm probably wrong to even make it that personal. Um, But at the same time, notice what Aristotle is emphasizing. I imagine just sitting there, you can think of people in your life who are just so damn pleasant that it's, you just can't stand to be around them. Like, there's this great line in catch 22 about, you know, Applebee is like, there's just so friendly and so warm and so loving that Yosarian could not stand to be around him and everybody hates him. Like, that's kind of the way that people react in many of these cases. Just like Aristotle was saying earlier, where everybody wants to be the benefactor, the person giving the favors, and nobody wants to be the recipient. A person who is always nice to everybody will frequently rub people the wrong way in that sense as much as it may seem like virtue from their perspective. Um, So I think there's a good bit of insight here as far as that's concerned, but again we need to take it with take it with a grain of salt, recognize the context as well. Um, Now the last thing that he sort of dwells on just a little bit is this business of the erotic lover and friendship as community. I do want to sort of dwell on this for a moment, because I think that Aristotle is getting a little bit of a myopic vision here, though. Um, And we get a little bit of this in in section 11 as well. So if we look at the top of page 68, the first full paragraph here, um, we get this discussion about, you know, following up on this question, you know, do we need friends in good fortune or do we need them in bad fortune? Aristotle observes that oftentimes it's kind of bad form to, like, make people suffer with us. And he mentions, that is why someone with a manly nature tries to prevent his friend from sharing his pain. Unless he is unusually immune to pain, he cannot endure pain coming to his friends, and he does not allow others to share his mourning at all, since he is not prone to mourn himself either. Females, however, and effeminate men, enjoy having people to wail with them. They love them as friends who share their distress, but in everything we clearly must imitate the better person. Now this requires a little bit of unpacking here. On the one hand, I do think that Aristotle is fairly insightful here. Um, Like I remember I had a friend in college who we were just sort of talking informally about just people and our observations of human interaction. And at one point he used this absolutely wonderful metaphor that I will never forget, where he said that um, if a guy is sitting in a mud puddle, he wants a friend to come out and pull him out of the mud puddle. But if a girl is sitting in a mud puddle, she wants her friend to come and sit in the mud puddle with her. Um, And this is exactly what Aristotle is describing here, in virtually the exact same terms. But it doesn't have the necessarily negative quality to it. Like, Aristotle is very demeaning to women in this little speech of his. Like, we should be more masculine because we should avoid effeminacy in all of its forms. In everything, we clearly must imitate the better person. Like, he's obviously being really demeaning to women and really demeaning to this rather apt observation of human nature, I suspect. But I also want to stress, I want to push back against this. What is the function of a person asking you to sit in the mud puddle with them? Um, Like, I think that actually, like, Parks and Rec also got this really well. Like, there's one great episode where, like, Chris Traeger, the eternally optimistic, incredibly energetic dude, is currently dating Ann Perkins, who is very pregnant and very upset and very grumpy about the situation. And uh, Chris is just always trying to help her and always trying to do the right thing and always trying to solve her problems and always trying to rub her back and fix things. And it is driving her up the freaking wall. He's so freaking positive all the time and she is just miserable and there's nothing that he can do about it despite all of his optimism. And finally Chris is like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know why I'm frustrating her. And Donna, the sage of the show, finally tells him just shut up and say that sucks and that's all you need to do. And he does. He goes back to Anne and Anne's like, my back hurts and I feel bloated all the time. And he's like, that sucks. And that's all she wants. As much as Aristotle is like, this is demeaning and unmanly and effeminate and we should not do this, I think that this actually has a really important role in our contemporary culture. Um, And I say this as a dude who is very much of the proactive get that person out of the mud puddle perspective. Like, my wife will often tell me to stop, you know, trying to give her advice, stop trying to solve the problem, just sit and say that sucks with her, just sit in the mud puddle with her, so to speak. I think that especially when there are so many things in this life that we really can't do anything about, especially when there are circumstances outside of our control, especially when we are sitting under the boot of capitalism, um, as many are putting it these days, like I think there is a really important function for this more feminine approach to dealing with trauma, to dealing with shitty situations, i.e. you sit in the mud puddle together because nobody is there to pull you out of it, and you just commiserate, you just say that sucks. Um, like the most positive spin that I can think of about this is actually from the movie Inside Out. Um, like there's that great scene where the imaginary friend is really depressed and sadness sits next to him and just comforts him. They sit together and are sad together and enjoy, you know, Amy Poehler, very and very, you know, high energy, very proactive, solve all the problems. She's baffled by this. The fact is that being sad has a certain function. And it did in Greek culture, too. Aristotle's just not making the connection here. Um, In Greek culture, you would go to a tragedy with the intention of sort of watching this horrible thing play out on stage, and many would weep and wail and suffer. Aristotle's just not seeing the connection here. We need an outlet to basically say, that sucks, and have people respond to us, yes, that sucks. Um, we need that in our lives. We we need to occasionally back down from our solve the problem, proactive, hyper-masculine, you know, yang insta- or yin instead of yang standpoint, and, and just sit in the mud puddle. Agree that, like, yes, everything about this situation is rotten, and no, we do not have any really great solutions for it. The people who do try to solve all these problems, who do, you know, overexert themselves trying to make the world a better place, oftentimes are in fact hurting themselves. Um, And I highly recommend that you recognize that in yourself if that's the case. Like, I know that you, in all likelihood, and I don't mean this in any way that is demeaning or something, just because you are inexperienced, because you are students in all likelihood, many of you probably have not faced, the worst that the world has to offer at this point. For those of you that have, you probably know what I'm talking about here. There are situations that you just can't fix. There are injustices in the world that are just so overwhelming that the only way that you can deal with it in a way that is healthy is to just sit there and say, that sucks, to offer a shoulder to cry on and call it a day. Like no amount of calls to the congressmen will solve every single problem in American life today. In order to just function as a human being, eventually you just had to turn yourself off and say, that sucks, and let that be enough. Um, To sort of add on to this myopic perspective, you'll notice that in chapter 12, Aristotle all makes sort of another assumption, which seems less obviously gendered, but may also be informed by his own gendered perspective. Um, at the very last line on page 68 into to the top of 69, he says, whatever someone regards as his being or the end in which he chooses to be alive, that is the activity he wishes to pursue in his friend's company. Hence, some friends drink together, others play dice, while others do gymnastics and go hunting, or do philosophy. They spend their days together on whichever pursuit in life they like most, for since they want to live with their friends, they share the actions in which they find their common life. Notice that this sort of last beat that Aristotle brings to this conversation, this is also something that we're going to see a lot in other discussions of friendship. The idea that friendship is based on something that you do together you do philosophy together, or you go hunting together, or you, you know, go to the gymnasium together, or you drink together. Like, you have the central activity that binds you as friends. Like, I play video games with some of my friends, or I play board games with some of them, or I, feel free to accuse me of my nerdiness here, we'll sit down and play magic with some of my friends, or play Dungeons and Dragons. Like, these are all outlets for people to sort of enjoy each other's company. But from what I understand, and this again is very cursory on my knowledge, I've read like one book on the subject and heard only one reference to it, this apparently is also a very much a dude thing. Um, Like guys sort of build friendships around a common pastime, a common hobby. Um, They play Warhammer together, or they watch football together, or they have a fantasy football league together, or they, you know, play baseball on the weekends together, or they build a hot rod together, or whatever the case may be. That's a dude thing. Women, when they get together, typically do not do this in the same way. Like, they will make, you know, girls' nights and just talk or maybe they'll watch a movie, but it'll basically just be background noise for just talking, for catching up. Uh, The way that I heard this sort of discussed by the, the, the book that I read or the book that I'm familiar with is that guys make friends shoulder to shoulder. They stand next to each other doing this common pastime where girls sit face to face. They are the pastime. They are much more interested in each other as people. Um, That's not to say that guys are not interested in each other as people. It's just that they are too socially awkward, too emotionally stunted, one might even say, um, to be able to express those feelings without some kind of excuse for having this conversation. Like, talking about our feelings is girly, so therefore we're instead going to, you know, play this video game and scream at the television for a little while, and that will be cathartic enough. Um, or, you know, the sort of hackneyed joke on, on sitcoms nowadays, where all the guy, all two friends need to do what they're fighting is beat the living shit out of each other, and then everything's fine. Uh, like, they can't express their emotions in a way that is civilized, and so they just do this, and it works for them, and why fix when ain't broke? Um, what I want to stress here is that Aristotle is very much clocking in on the dude's side, and he's kind of oblivious to the fact that any other possibility exists. Um, And since most of the people who we're going to read about in this class, most of the people who are writing are dudes, we're going to get this perspective fairly frequently. And I just want to kind of correct it before it becomes a major problem. Um, This, I suspect, is a bias, and a male bias specifically. That's not to say that women don't do the shoulder-to-shoulder thing, or that, you know, there aren't guys who do the mud puddle thing, or that there are women who aren't proactive. Like, these are all sweeping generalizations. Um, I think that Aristotle is right to sort of associate them with certain genders, that it does seem more likely in some cases than in others, Uh, but there is always a spectrum. I don't want to overgeneralize. What I do want to say, though, is if we, you know, I'm using these generalizations not to say, you know, women are this way versus men are that way. I'm using these generalizations to say both approaches are effective there's, we don't need to be normative about this the way that Aristotle is. Aristotle is saying, you know, getting people out of the mud puddle is better, better than letting them sit in the mud puddle. People hanging out together doing a common activity is better than people hanging out talking about their feelings. I want to reject both of those ideas. Um, there is no normative sort of basis here. I suspect that the reason why we, you know, have both is because we need both. Um, you know, the sort of conventionally woman act of sitting in the mud puddle and looking for commiseration is necessary for people who are overly proactive, but it's also necessary for proactive people to help people who are overly inclined to sort of stewing and not actually doing anything about their circumstances to get out of the mud puddle. We need both. There is a balance here both approaches are called for in certain circumstances, or at the very least there's no reason to think that one of them is better than the other or one is, you know, uncalled for in any circumstance. Um, Let's be aware that this is a bias. Um, Aristotle is approaching this from a very specific and very masculine dominated perspective. Let's be aware that there are alternatives out there and the alternatives are not bad. The alternatives are alternatives. Um, there are multiple ways to be friends and not any of them are bad, Um, or at least not at the outset. Like there may in fact be, you know, friendships based on viciousness, friendships that sort of bring out the worst parts of each other's characters, and those are bad friendships and they should be stomped on and people should follow them. Like they are toxic, they are bad, don't do that. But that's on a case-by-case basis, not a sweeping generalization like all women make bad friends that's just dumb and wrong, and we're not going to we're not going to get any profit out of following that track. Uh, let's take it on a case by case basis. Let's judge ourselves on a case by case basis, and not fall into these sweeping generalizations. Um, the last two passages that we skipped over. Uh, this is section I think nine. No, no, it was before that. It was six and five. Um, Aristotle was talking about goodwill on the one hand and uh, Concord on the other, and sort of talking about how the two relate to friendship. And the reason why I kind of skipped over them is because I don't think they're that all that important. Um, We're very much engaging in a kind of purely verbal discussion here, like it is typical of Socratic dialogues to sort of talk about the ways that words relate to one another, to one another, like how you know categorical reasoning basically functions. As though you know, what is what is the relationship between one word or another? Is piety a part of justice, or is justice a part of piety? Is love part of some greater category, or are there subcategories like philia and eros to the greater category of love? Um, And to some degree, I am really fascinated by merely verbal discussions. Like, I am really interested to see the conclusions that Aristotle comes up with. Um, But it's also something that's very difficult to appreciate in the English. Um, What I think is actually the most striking about these two passages is that Aristotle is actually using words that are very similar in the Greek. He is talking about philasis, friendship, or affection, uh, but he is relating them to the two ideas of eunoia, uh, goodwill, and homonoia, that is concord or agreement, which both of them, you'll notice they have that suffix noia, which typically relates to noiesis or thought. Um, So good thinking, or rather thinking well of another person, is basically what's being said by goodwill, and concord is same thinking, like being in agreement with one another. Um, I think this is striking because it does mean that Aristotle is thinking in terms of Friendship as well as perspective. Friendship as being either a function of or as embodying characteristics of thinking about the other person in certain ways. Like either being in complete concord, agreement with another person, which is what he characterizes as like the central tenet of a successful government or a successful community. And on the other hand, we have this goodwill, thinking well of another person, which is simultaneously an important component of friendship while not being the same as friendship. You can think well of a stranger without being intimate with them the way that you would expect a friend to be. But the one thing that I do want to draw out of this, the one thing that I do want to stress about these two noesis-based friend relationships, is that friendship has a lot to do with, for Aristotle, with perspective, with how we see and interpret the other's actions. Um, It is, in its essence, giving the benefit of the doubt to others. As Aristotle stresses, if somebody comes up to you and tries to slander your friend, you're probably going to reject it outright. Friends don't slander each other because friends believe the utmost of each other, even when that's not necessarily true. Now, in a true, complete, virtuous friendship, it is true. You are both aspiring to goodness. You both had this intimate knowledge of one another. But it also means that you are going out of your way not to judge each other, to think the best of each other. And in the same way that Aristotle is talking about, like bestowing favors and, and friendship being a very active thing that you do, I want to personally stress... That a lot of being a friend, something that we can sort of derive from Aristotle's text, even if it's not explicitly there in the text to be had, is that a lot of that work, a lot of the business of, you know, being a friend is going out of your way to think the best of the other. You know, I think a lot of friendships and a lot of relationships in general fail because people are very quick to judge one another they're seeking out the bad in another person's behavior so they can pounce on it and you know think of themselves as better as a consequence they're looking for opportunities to say well at least i'm not as terrible as that guy is Um, but as a on the contrary really being a friend really caring about someone for their own sake involves looking at themselves the way that they look at themselves understanding their actions the way that they understand their actions trying to understand why they are doing things that otherwise seem disgusting or repulsive or aggressive or frustrating to us it is again giving them the benefit of the doubt and this mental control this is something that aristotle is very much emphasizing throughout the nicomachean ethics we have to practice virtue cultivate habits of virtue be decent people on a regular basis. And as much as that may involve, you know, being generous or being courageous or any of these other things, it also requires this determined habit of generous thinking. It is about practical wisdom, about the way that we think. It is about controlling the way that we think. And this is very much a lost art in our culture or maybe it isn't. Like, I, from what I understand, a lot of therapists, a lot of psychoanalysts are very much trying to bring back this idea of, like, self-discipline, of controlling what you're thinking about, sort of governing your thoughts on this metacognitive level. Uh, but for Aristotle and for the ancients, this was of the utmost importance. This is the primary virtue that gives you access to all of the others. Before you can successfully conquer your vices, you have to conquer your own mind. Um, It is something that Plato very much stresses and all of those examples that we talked about, like where Socrates is going around telling people that, you know, that, that he is the wisest man in Athens specifically because he knows that he knows nothing. That humility is part of his self-discipline. That's what Alcibiades is gravitating towards in his speech at the end of, of the symposium. Socrates was a master of controlling his own thoughts, of subduing his passions by the way of his reason, as he describes in the Republic. Aristotle is very much following in the same vein. All of this text, all of this discussion of friendship, all of the discussion of happiness very much hinges on the idea that we are in control of our own perspective, of our own mind. We are cultivating good mental habits, more than just praying or meditating or this sort of like outside interaction, but like we are the governors of our own mind. We refuse to think in ways that are bad or potentially demeaning. We refuse to let ourselves hurt ourselves the way that the bad people are always self-destructive because they're just greedily hoovering up all of these exterior goods without paying any attention to what's going on in their own minds or in their own souls. That's the point I want to sort of drive home here, more than what he has to say about Concord or uh, or Goodwill specifically. This all suggests that to Aristotle, active thinking is as much a part of active friendship and active loving, which is the highest virtue that one can aspire to. Um, now for next week, we're going to completely switch gears. We're not going to be in Greece anymore. We're going to take a brief hiatus before we move on to the ancient Romans, the rest of our sort of classical Western culture thing. We're going to spend one day, and it is a damn shame that we only have one day to spend on it, but there is so much we have to cover. And we're going to talk about Eastern philosophy. Um, we're going to talk about their perspective on love, especially with the Kama Sutra, and we're going to talk about sort of interpersonal relationships and this kind of compassion love generally, um, especially as it's phrased through the Dhammapada, the Analects, and um, the, the Motsu and his theory of universal love. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about Buddhism, we're going to talk a a little bit about Confucianism and Taoism, we're going to talk a little bit about Hinduism, we're going to talk about a lot of the Eastern perspectives, and while it is hardly going to be comprehensive, like, you should definitely talk to somebody else if you want a really comprehensive understanding of these things, I do want to at least give you exposure Uh, I do want to at least talk about it, because on the one hand, it is important and it does influence Western philosophy in some strange and unexpected ways. It is entirely possible that some of the later ancient Greeks after Aristotle and some of the Romans have had interactions with some of these ideas, as well as coming back to haunt us in the form of Schopenhauer in the 19th century. But also because we are here to look at a wide variety of different perspectives. Um, just as Plato is entertaining a wide variety of different attitudes on love. That includes those that are very foreign to the sort of sweep of Western culture as we're describing in this class. Um, So let's read those texts. Let's come prepared to talk about them. Um, Importantly, next week, we also don't have a quiz. We are instead going to write a response paper Um, specifically about these Eastern readings and hopefully contrasting them with uh, the Stoics and the other things that we're running into here. Um, So do read this closely and see what you think. I'm here to talk about it with you next time.